glad that you could be here with us today. Coming close to the end of the book of Job. So if you want to turn to Job 40, verse 6, you can. So we prepare to hear God's second speech to Job. Job has suffered terribly. So Job has suffered unjustly. Job has suffered at the hand of Satan and his minions. And he is unaware of that. And so we are coming to the point where God is answering out of the whirlwind. Injustice has been debated ad nauseum. And now God speaks. But before we get to our text, I want you to think of a river that you've seen. We live on the Rio Grande down here. Some of you may have grown up uh, near a river or in West Virginia. Uh, my grandparents lived on Patterson Creek or Crick, depending on uh, how you wanted to say it. But rivers are beautiful things. They are peaceful things even. But when they flood, they have great power, a power that is remarkable. As we saw even just recently in uh, Yellowstone, many of you may have seen images on the news of houses and bridges being swept away. And uh, the thing of it is, is we, we tend to only see the house coming off of the, the banks or the, the bridge being washed down the river. We don't see where it lands and gets crushed and splintered. I can remember when I was growing up, there was a, a flood in our county in West Virginia, and just afterwards seeing the devastation that was caused by tons and tons of water forcefully washing things helplessly in its control throughout the county. They are a powerful force, and when we see their destruction, we are reminded that there are forces in this world that we as human beings cannot contend with. There's just nothing we can do. There's nothing in our power to contend with them. And as we look at the Lord's second speech to Job, we're going to see a theme of power. You're going to see it repeated through here. So let's look at this speech and see what I've entitled God's power over all rivals. God's power over all rivals. First, Yahweh is going to address Job's request for a lawsuit. Previously in the book, Job has questioned in his laments God's justice. And he's expressed his desire to present his case before the Lord. In Job 13, verse 3, he said this, But I would speak to the Almighty. I desire to argue my case to God. In Job chapter 9, verses 21 through 24, Job cries out, I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked, and he covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? Strong words, strong accusations as Job laments his situation. Job 24, verse 1, he says, Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know Him never see His days? And then in verse 12 of that lament, 
He says, from out of the city the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. And so Job has said some very strong things about God. And he has spoken without understanding. And in this second speech, the Lord is going to address Job's desire for a lawsuit to question his justice. Look at Job 40, verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Now, note here when he says, I will question you and you make it known to me. Job is going to use this phrase, or the author is going to use this phrase in Job 42, verse 4, to cue us in to what question from the Lord Job is answering. But God is now going to argue that He alone has the power to bring justice in the world. And uh, He's going to be able to judge the world in righteousness. He has power over all rivals. The arm here is a representation of a person's strength or power. Verse 9, he says to Job, Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. What God is saying here is, Job, you don't have the power to save yourself, much less judge the proud and wicked of all humanity. But yet Yahweh lacks no power to judge injustice by the proud and the wicked. And he is not in the wrong. Wickedness and injustice exist in this world, but Yahweh has placed the limits on it. What is Yahweh up to in Job's life? What is he up to in the world? Well, he doesn't say. But one thing is for certain, no person has the power to thwart his purposes. But what about non-human beings? What about forces that are at work that we have no control over? We look next at Behemoth and Leviathan. Who are or what are Behemoth and Leviathan? I'm going to quickly give you, because we don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to quickly give you a couple theories or, or explanations of this, and then we're going to go with my explanation. You may or may not just agree with me. That's fine. You wouldn't be the only person, okay? But many believe that these are literal animals described with poetic language. A hippopotamus and crocodile have been suggested. Others suggest now extinct dinosaurs. And there are good arguments for this interpretation. But contextually, I believe God is arguing for His power over moral forces of evil. Therefore, I don't think animals fit the context, especially since the Lord already addressed the animal kingdom in his first speech and how he cares for them. Others believe these creatures are borrowed from Mesopotamian mythology. Given that Job is from the land of Uz in the area of ancient Babylon, this interpretation also has merit. And another similar interpretation is that of myth 
oopoeic language. Don't ask me to say it again. What is that? Well, it's a language that gives rise to myths. Okay? One commentator said this. Uh, we suggest that it is mythopoeic, mythopoeic language intended as another way of referring to a unique cosmic creature such as the accuser in the prologue. He is beyond the pale of mere human strength, just as the accuser was. So those are some, some of the interpretations for Behemoth and Leviathan. What do I believe and what am I going to argue here? I argue that God is using symbolic language to describe spiritual beings and or even human forces that are moved by spiritual forces intent on evil. Describing human beings and spiritual beings as animals and mythic creatures is not foreign to the Scriptures. When prophetically describing the Roman soldiers at the crucifixion of Jesus in Psalm 22, David uses this language, Psalm 22, verses 12 and 13. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Then in verses 16 through 18, he says this, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. In Daniel chapter 7, kingdoms and kings are described as fantastical creatures. And these descriptions induce appropriate fear in the reader as these creatures that bring chaos and disorder are presented symbolically. They have a power that, like a raging river, cannot be overcome by mere human strength. Now, it's important that Job not know the details about Satan's involvement in his suffering. It helps us to identify with Job when we encounter suffering and injustice that we don't understand. Sometimes we just don't get the answer to the quiz. So describing the cosmic powers this way allows God to tell Job that he is powerful enough to bring justice throughout the cosmos without revealing Satan's direct involvement with Job. So with that in mind, let's read about Behemoth. And who do I think he represents? I'm not sure. Okay? I think it may represent the armies or kingdoms. Represent armies or kingdoms. Perhaps the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans who, under the influence of Satan, took Job's donkeys and camels back in chapter 1. But we're going to read here about a beast that rises out of the water. I'm sorry, a behemoth that rises out of the waters. Okay, That's language we will hear again in the Scriptures. But he goes on and he describes behemoth. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar, and sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword, for the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. 
For his shade the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. And then he asks, Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? God can. The implication is is that God can, but we can't. Only the Creator has the power to overcome the behemoth who rises from the waters. Note that God is His Creator in verse 15. He says, I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. You say, well, spiritual beings don't eat. Well, actually, we have instances where they do, right? When the angels visited Abraham with God, they ate a meal with him, right? So... Only the Creator has the power to overcome. Verse 19, He is the first of the works of God. God is showing His superiority as the Creator. Then we see Yahweh's power over Leviathan. Says, uh, and, and I'm going to contend that this represents Satan. Uh, when, when we began this chapter, he talks about the proud. Job being able to bring down the proud men. He's going to end, end his description of Leviathan as the king of the proud. And so, if we just had those two verses, we would certainly think that this was Satan. First, we see that he is uncatchable, but not for the Lord. He says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Next, we see he's untamable. He says, Will you... Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? He's untamable. He's also unkillable. Verses 6 through 9. Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Have you ever had one of those times that you did something and you said, well, I'm I'm not going to do that again, right? Well, that's what what the Lord's saying here. You you lay hands on him for battle. You'll not do it again. Verse 9, Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. They faint at the sight of Leviathan. And Leviathan is presented as a monster in the sea. He is a... He's a sea creature. Only the Creator is powerful enough to overcome Leviathan. Look at verses 10 and 11. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. You see, the Lord is mighty in power over all of his creation whether in the physical or spiritual realm. He can't be bribed because he owns it all. What are you going to offer to God that's not already his? He owes no one anything. And the Lord is, is going to have power over his creation, Leviathan. He goes on about Leviathan through the end of the chapter. He's very proud. He seems to be very proud of his creation. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? 
Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone. Hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At at the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. His strength there, he's breaking things like they're straw and wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. There is none like the Leviathan, who is unrivaled in all of creation. Verses 33 and 34. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Now, again, as I said before, the Lord's speech began with a challenge to Job to humble the proud. Now we see that Leviathan is the king of the proud. Only the owner of the universe can capture the Leviathan who fears nothing and rules over the proud. What mankind cannot do, the Lord will do easily, like a fisherman using a fish hook to draw a fish out of the water. Now, after this great speech, we hear Job's response, his conclusion. And what we're going to see here in verse 2 is Job's confession of what he concludes from both speeches. And then he's going to address each speech individually. So verse 2 is his confession of what he's concluded from both speeches. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, verse 3 is Job's response to the Lord's first speech because he quotes the Lord's question to him at the beginning of the first speech. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? That's what the Lord had said to Job. Job responds, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Now, if we recall in the Lord's first speech, we concluded that the Lord answers questions of Why? With a who. And in his wisdom, he limits injustice and cares for his creation according to his good purposes. And if he cares for the animals, he cares for Job. And Job states that the Lord's care for him here is is too wonderful for me. 
Now Job answers the second speech that we looked at today, where he quotes the Lord when the Lord said to him, Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. So here's the answer to the second speech. Verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Again, the Lord's purposes cannot be thwarted. He will limit wickedness in this world, whether from human or spiritual forces. So what does Job repent of? Well, that his accusation that the Lord was not governing justly. Job repents of his misguided conclusions concerning the Lord's perceived lack of justice. And he says again in verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So now we can expound upon Job's conclusion this way. Number one, evil and injustice exist in this world. That's what they've been debating ad nauseum in the book of Job. Why? What's going on with evil and injustice? Evil and injustice exist in the world. Number two, the Lord is just and good and cares for Job. That's kind of the result of the first speech, Job's conclusion. The Lord is just and good and He cares for Job. Then number three, the Lord lacks no power to judge evil and wickedness. We get that from the second speech. Verse or Number four, Therefore, we can conclude with Job that any injustice that is allowed is being used by the Lord to accomplish His good purposes. Any injustice allowed is being used by the Lord to accomplish His good purposes. This is the conclusion that Job comes to. The the Lord lacks no power to accomplish His purposes despite the existence of evil and injustice in the physical and spiritual realms. Whatever injustice you encounter is allowed only because it will ultimately in some way contribute to God's purposes in the world. Now, let's get to the purposes of God. And I want to read to you from Elmer Smick from his commentary in Job. He says, by telling of his dominion over behemoth and leviathan, the Lord is celebrating his moral triumph over the forces of evil. Satan, the accuser, has been proved wrong, though Job does not know it. The author and the reader see the entire picture that Job and his friends never knew. No rational theory of suffering is substituted for the faulty one the friends proffered. The only answer given is the same as in Genesis. God permitted the accuser to touch Job as part of his plan to humiliate Satan. (coughs) We've said since the beginning, Job is a type of the righteous sufferer. He points us to Christ who suffered the greatest injustice in all of history at the cross. But this was all done according to the purposes of God. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. We read there, Men of Israel, hear these words. This is Peter's uh, speech of the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up to the Romans for crucifixion According to the definite plan 
and foreknowledge of God. Okay? God had a purpose in this injustice, but the men who did this injustice are still held accountable. Look, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Evil and injustice exist in this world, but God, in his infinite wisdom and in his definite plan, manipulates evil men to, in their desire to do evil, actually accomplish God's purpose. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Gorillas eat popcorn, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. We're going to see about God's purposes. Remember, Job said, nobody can stop God's purposes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His what? His will. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved in Christ. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of what? His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Here's the purpose. To unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Now he talks about the mystery that's now been revealed. Something that was previously hidden that's now known. Ephesians 3, starting at verse 6. Start, starting at verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body. And partakers of the promises of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the, through the gospel, Gentiles are included with the Jews who believe in faith and we're placed in Christ. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is, what's those next two words? The plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in where? The heavenly places, the spiritual realm. It's like God's had this plan working this whole time. And he gave, a, he gave a great preview of it in Job, and they still didn't get it. Right? This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
God has always had a plan to unite Jew and Gentile in Christ through faith. But there are spiritual forces at war with God's purposes. It is through the church that God's wisdom in the gospel is made known to the forces of evil, putting them to shame. In Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, it says, And you, that's us who... Uh, us Gentiles and Jews who believe in Christ, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open what? Shame. By triumphing over them in Christ. You see, Satan thought he was gaining the victory when he killed Jesus Christ. When he moved in the Jewish leadership and when he moved in the Roman leaders to crucify our Lord and Savior. You talk about regretting something? Satan was the instrument used to bring about the payment for our sins. What? Talk about being put to shame. God did that in Christ. And listen, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I hope you see that God has worked this plan and that no purposes of His will ever be thwarted. And that in Christ, God used the evil and injustice of this world to pay for your sins. And if you'll repent of your sin and trust Jesus Christ as your Lord, follow Him with your life, He will save you. He will put you in Christ, place you in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm with Christ, and you will be secure with Him forever. Oh, trust Christ as your Savior today. But quickly, let's move on to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, because the battle rages on. Even though Satan has been humiliated, that, that didn't make him happy. He's angry. So he's now going to persecute God's saints. But Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 12, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan does not want the message of Jesus Christ to go out there, but the church is here to declare the wisdom of God in all the nations. You can be saved through Jesus Christ. You can be reconciled to God in Him. And this struggle is going to continue until the new creation. Note the language of the Apostle John. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. Last book in the Bible. Revelation 12, verse 3. Note the language the Apostle John uses to describe the participants in the war between the forces of evil and the saints of God. Revelation 12, 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. It's interesting that Leviathan in the mythological descriptions, had seven heads. We don't have time to expound all this, but just note in verse 9 of chapter 12. And the great dragon was thrown down, and now we have him identified. That ancient serpent who is called who? The devil and Satan. 
the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Look to verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Then we look to Revelation 13, verses 1 and 2. We see, we've seen Satan. Now we're going to see the Antichrist, a beast. It says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 13, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head, on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. That's the Antichrist. Look down to verse 11 of chapter 13. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. That's going to be the false prophet. But turn to Revelation 19, verse 20, because I want you to see no purpose of God will be thwarted. He wins in the end. Revelation 19, verse 20, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Look over to chapter 20, verse 10. It says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, the Lord will ultimately defeat His rivals in power. But until that day, we have 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 11. We who are living in this world now dealing with the wickedness and the suffering. Peter writes and he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of what? Suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That brings us back to suffering. The biblical pattern is that God saves his people out of sin, who then encounter trials in this life that test the genuineness of their faith, which ends in the eternal life in the presence of God. Now, you may be going through trials in your life that you just don't understand. To the best of your knowledge, no sin in your life. Whether health struggles or mistreatment by others, your suffering is unjust. In our text today, we made the following observations. Number one, evil and injustice exist in this world. But the Lord is just and good and cares for you if you are one of His. If you've never trusted Christ your Savior, become one of His today. But He cares for you. And He does not lack any power to judge evil and wickedness. So, therefore, we can conclude that any injustice allowed in your life is being used by the Lord to accomplish His good purposes in Christ. The Lord lacks no power 
to accomplish His good purposes despite the existence of evil and injustice in the physical and spiritual realms. Whatever injustice you encounter is allowed only because it will ultimately, in some way, contribute to God's purpose to unite all things in Christ. Therefore, you can trust the Lord of your circumstances. Keep your eyes on Him. And remember, it's okay to lament. Lament is a prayer and pain that leads to trust. You can trust the Lord of your circumstance. He's up to something good, even in your suffering. You can trust the Lord of your circumstances. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the book of Job and how it points to Jesus Christ who suffered unjustly at the hands of evil men and at the hands of Satan. But how You put the spiritual forces of evil to open shame, just as you did in the book of Job, Satan thinking that he could crush your righteous servant through suffering. He failed with Job and he failed with Christ. But oh, what a work you did in Christ. And Father, I pray that you will help us as a church to understand that the injustice and the suffering that we encounter is only allowed because you are working it for a good purpose in this world. And may we stay loyal to you, even if it means death, that your purposes may be accomplished, even in us. And Father, give us boldness to let the world know your wisdom in Jesus Christ as the ruler of this earth through his death, burial, and resurrection to his throne in heaven. Father, May you be glorified in the nations and may the Satan and his minions be put to open shame through our work with the gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.